0: Welcome to the Not Last Podcast, Season One, Episode Eleven. I'm Andrew Neil Nunez. Today's topic is titled "Good Times" or stories that you might think are funny. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. Welcome all, and thanks for tuning in again. Last week was my first week back from a little bit of our my staycation. Um. It was a nice little break, got uh, quite a bit of riding in. Um, it was rough to go back to work, as I'm sure you've all experienced the, the, the day-before-work slump, coming back from vacation, where you feel like you need a vacation from your vacation. That's <laughs> definitely how it felt. Um, but getting back in the swing of things, getting uh, back on top of the pile of little... Um, Nuances and little emails to answer and, and customers to take care of, sort of sort of thing at the bike shop. But uh, this last weekend, uh, actually yesterday, today is Sunday. It's Sunday morning. It's six thirty in the morning. Um, Saturday and Friday are my days off from work. And Friday, my uh, best friend uh, decided to invite me out for a, a long <laughs> a long ride. Uh, we did this ride um, uh, south of uh, Cottage Grove called Sharps Creek, and I rode out to his place out in Cottage Grove, so it was about an hour and a half ride to get out to him, and then we started our ride. Turned it out to be just over six hours of riding, and 104 miles, and six uh, 6,000 feet of elevation and change. Um, Sharps Creek is this brutal climb. He said it was hard, but I hadn't done a climb like that in a very long time. It was 4, maybe 5 miles of 10 or 11%. And my lower back was just in pure agony. That much seated climbing was just brutal. It's so steep that... Um, I mean, you're, you're climbing for 40 or 50 minutes seated and it's so steep that if you, if you stop, chances are you can't keep, like you can't get going again, um, uh, because you can't get enough momentum to clip back into your pedals. So, uh, you just have to keep pushing, uh, ripping fast ascent, gorgeous views. Um, it was a pretty spectacular ride, but it, uh, <laughs> it was a big day. Um, Yeah. 6 hours and I don't know 6 hours and 10 or 15 minutes and 104 miles and um 4500 calories burned had a big old burrito after that it was oh it was great um but uh yeah that that was my little little <laughs> there's my little weekly update for you it was lots of riding yesterday um Lauren and I went out for a bike ride uh we got her bike her english bike fixed up um put the wheels back on and aired up the tires and, and, uh, she got out for a nice, we did a, just about a 20 mile bike ride on the Rau River Trail, um, which was super fun to get out together. We, we don't get to do that very often at all because I'm usually out training and she's working or running or, 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 doing other things, but, uh, it was really nice to get out together. So today's episode is, um, largely because this year is, hopefully almost over um i believe the best summary so far of 2020 is complete and utter dumpster fire so i'm going to share with you today my my stories and my stories are hopefully well they're personal but uh hopefully a little a little uplifting and and a nice way to start out your week with some, uh, some good old bike stories. Cause what's better than good old bike stories? There, there are a few things better, maybe cats, espresso, socks. Okay. There are things better than, than, than bike stories, but, um, but, but they're pretty good. So my first one for you is starts in, this is 2005. Yeah. About 2005 when I first started bike racing before I start, first started biking this this was my introduction to cycling um, I was in college at the time and was a sophomore yeah it was a sophomore in college I had this teeny tiny um, studio apartment it was a quad and it was a shared kitchen with four other studio apartments um, I had a little mini fridge and 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 this and I was on the the top of a of a third floor building, no, no elevator, no nothing. You had to walk up these rickety stairs. The whole building was probably about to fall apart. It was in rough shape, but, um, it was right next to campus. And, and I would huff my bike up and down there, um, every day to go to classes, um, to go for bike rides. I was, I was getting, I thought I was getting pretty quick. I was the king of the bike path, self-proclaimed king of the bike path. I had a dry fit T-shirt that had a um, the, the University of Oregon logo on it had the Oregon O and some some um, black shorts baggy shorts but black shorts that um, uh, that I would put on as my cycling kit and I would go race up and down the bike path and I could do I could do like four or five miles pretty darn well and was pretty pretty quick so naturally I thought well. I guess I better, I guess I better join the cycling team and and uh, show them what's up and show them my my skills and ability. So I email the uh, president of the uh, U of O Cycling Club and get set up with the uh, time and location of the weekly uh, club ride. I suit up I have some uh, sweatpants on and it's pretty cold in the morning so I put on my sweatpants because I'm gonna go work out right and I have a bottle of Gatorade and a cliff bar unbeknownst to me we were doing about 60 miles and I'm in the back I'm struggling to, to stay on'm I'm, I'm on a road bike I ha- I had uh, I I had procured a road bike through my uncle after getting several bikes stolen in college. Um, I thought I would take a crack at a road bike. And the bike shop at the time fit me for this 61-centimeter road bike. I'm five foot 11 with a 30-inch inseam, 32-inch inseam. Let's be generous. And I got fit on this 61-centimeter road bike. My back was totally flat and stretched out on this thing. I could barely stand over the bike but I didn't know any better so I was on this thing and I had arrow bars yeah I wanted to go fast and so the bike shop um, uh, sold me some arrow bars to put on there and some some red tires it was a blue Fuji bicycle blue and silver with red tires and arrow bars and that was um, apparently the right size for me now that I have uh, <laughs> had more experience in a bike shop I realized that that was probably three sizes too big but uh, we'll get to that point in a minute we'll revisit that topic in a minute. So I, I go out, I have my Gatorade, red Gatorade. I remember this. It was a red Gatorade and a chocolate chip glyph bar. And I was ready to go. Um, I think I had a jacket on like a windbreaker on too, cause it was cold that morning. So we head out and the guys on the team, mm, hazing may have been the correct, maybe the correct term to use. Uh, I was kicked off the back and then they would wait for me and then egg me on and and keep me going. And then I'd get spat out again and they'd wait and keep pushing and keep going. And I would, I would just suffer. It was just a lot of suffering. That's about all I can remember from this ride was that it was 60 miles and it was just hell so we get back into town and they drop me off. I don't really know my way around town from like the outskirts yet. So I'm still learning, fairly new to Eugene. And they, they drop me off nearby my apartment or nearby campus so I can get back to my apartment. I hobble, quite literally hobble my way up the three flights of stairs with my bike on my shoulder. And I get into my studio apartment I know I'm hungry, but I'd never experienced this level of of hunger. I've been hungry before. I've ran long distances. I've done ultras. I've you know I I have the experience of 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 going deep and being hungry and fatigued. But this was a different level. Um, I don't believe I ate my Cliff Bar or drank my Gatorade because I was too scared to take my hands off the bars riding with a group and wanted to look i'm sure there was a certain level of pride and definitely a high dose of testosterone poisoning where i i didn't want to show that i was tired or that i was fatigued so i just grunted my way through this but i was bonked i was done um stick a fork in me i'm cooked kind of thing so i get into my studio apartment this place has uh, just it, it's a, a rickety door. It's full of you know college kids and some shady shady people that live there permanently. but um, I all I can remember is getting in, leaning my bike against the door, getting to my mini fridge, opening the door and finding whatever I could fit in my mouth that was within immediate reach and that included the ketchup bottle i'm not thinking i'm let me rephrase that that included the ketchup bottle as in i'm going to open the ketchup bottle and squirt ketchup into my mouth this isn't the dipping sauce this is a source for nutrients so i'm eating ketchup i'm eating cold pasta i have some eggs in there uh like some um some, uh, some egg scramble stuff in there. And so I'm, I'm eating this with my bare hands. Um, like a, like a Neanderthal, just stuffing my face full of food. I wake up. Mm, I don't know. It must've been a couple hours later. My head is in the fridge. The fridge door is open. I'm on the floor. My head is in the fridge. The door is open to my apartment. My bike is leaning up against the door. And it's dark outside. So I must have been there for a, a couple hours, I guess. Uh, I finally shut the door, bring my bike inside. Thankfully, no one stole it or raided my apartment or anything, at least so far as I know. But um, I shut the door. I'm, I still have my helmet on. My head is in the fridge. It's just... I have no idea where I am or what just happened. There's just this mess of food around me. I claw my way back, uh, into the bathroom, turn on the shower, still with my helmet on and kit on and just sit there to try and wake up. I turn it on as hot as I can. And I sit there and I slowly start to, uh, turn back into a person versus, (laughs) versus a Neanderthal. So I am, I'm hooked. I'm there. I'm like, Oh man, that was awful. I need more that was my introduction to cycling it was brutal it was violent <laughs> but i was hooked i couldn't get enough it was something that was so challenging and i'd never experienced that level of fatigue and i said to myself yeah i i want more of this so i kept showing up to the bike rides and slowly very very slowly I'd get a little better and a little better and could finally start to stick the group rides and the team rides. So there's one good one for you. I hope you enjoyed that. That was my my introduction to cycling. Um, once I got into racing a bit more with the U of O team, I was a terrible bike racer. Uh, I talked about this previously where I, unbeknownst to me, I was a pretty good time trialist, but I was an awful bike racer. I'm still a, well, I'm an okay bike racer now, but... Um I was even worse. I'd get, you know, not just dropped from every race, but dropped and lapped from most races and and could barely finish or would pull out of the race or something. I remember one time uh moreover I remember some of the stories around them the the camaraderie and the the events with the team. One time we were racing um just outside of Seattle and we were staying at some host housing in Seattle and went for a spin on the on the bike uh, on the waterfront around Seattle. And everyone's kitted up in their U of O kit. We're all looking really great, riding side by side on the bike path out like a like a real pro team. Um, you really think you're the you're the bee's knees when you're when you're in your own cycling team's kit, all riding together. Um, whether you are, or you are, not it doesn't matter. But you feel really good at the time. I remember riding. There were these um, uh, paved over um, light rail or tram tracks. And uh, they had little grooves in them, but you could ride in the middle of them in between the, the, the railway tracks. And so I'd get on there, and I uh, the whole group was behind me. And I said, hey, look, everyone, I'm, I'm, I'm the train. Here comes the train. Choo, choo, choo. And um, next thing I know, my front wheel gets caught in the track, and I go over the handlebars. This is day before the race. I go over the handlebars and land flat on my face, skin my elbows, skin my knees. Um, my chin is all busted up. Um, and as soon as I hit the ground, um, the, the tram line comes by and starts honking its horn to tell us to get out of the way. It was, it was quite poetic and, and quite, uh, uh, justified. (laughs) Um, there was another time we'd, we'd go race up in Bozeman, Montana. And because we were a club team, flying was not an option. So we rented a, uh, we'd have a, a passenger van, a 15-passenger van, and then a cargo van to stuff all the bikes in, and we'd drive 10 hours one way to get to Bozeman. It was a 20-hour trip uh, all the way around, round trip. And first time we got there, uh, we were in such a snowstorm that they canceled the race the night before. So <laughs> we we drive all this way, we get all these, you know, uh, excuse from classes and, and everything, and everything. And, and the trip's canceled. The race is canceled. Well, great. So we spin it around and drive it on back. Long hours in the car, talking about everything and nothing at the same time. Um, good team bonding, right? Remember the second t- time we went up to Bozeman? We got up there, started to um, to unpack and load and unload and, and get ready for the day, and it was it was cold. I mean, this is. This is spring racing in in Bozeman. So it's, you know, March, April kind of thing. And it starts to rain. No big deal. We have our, you know, we have our rain jackets and things. The temperature plummets, gets below freezing, and it starts to sleet. And then that turns into snow. And we're out racing in the snow. And halfway through, um, they just cancel the race. They call it. They say, okay, we're done and so this is two for two that we don't actually get to well we got to start the race but we didn't get to finish with the race i think we got like 20 miles into this like 80 mile race and they were like yeah no you're done and so we spun it around and cursed our way back to the vans loaded up um i mean we were so cold like it it you know we had the heat turned on all the way up in the van and everything was foggy because we were all sweaty and gross and I'm sure we smelled great as well, and um, and you know <laughs> that was it. That was it. We we warmed up and then eventually made our way back. Um, I think we went to a hotel just for the day. Uh, we rented, got into a hotel room just to have a hot shower so we could all warm up. Uh, we all pitched in for something like that because again we have no budget because we were a club team. Um, that was yeah. That was a lot of collegiate racing. It was a lot of uh, bonding more than racing. After my abysmal collegiate, uh, racing experiences, um, I found that I was getting better and better as a cyclist. And I, um, at one point I, I got working with, I worked for REI and I started just selling shoes for REI, slinging shoes, and then worked my way into the bike shop, um, worked my way up to, you know, um, Master Mechanic and, and Assistant um, Head Mechanic position in Ski Tech. And then um, got a, applied for and received a job as the Master Mechanic at, uh, at, actually, it was the Salem Kaiser REI. I opened that store and hired the mechanics and, and built the shop and put it all together. But to do that, they um, they sent you to Barnett's Bicycle Institute in Colorado Springs, so I, I, I know of Colorado Springs. The Olympic Training Center is there. Um, Pike's Peak is there. Um, and I wanted to bring a bike, so I borrowed a bike Friday from, from my friend Rob and a little 20-inch 20, 20 wheeled um, folding bike that puts into a, into a suitcase. The gearing is just like a regular bicycle. It has the same effective gear ratio as, as a standard 700c road bike, but it has 20-inch wheels and is teeny-tiny. Um, it's fairly light. It's, you know, 20, 25 pounds or so, but uh, a nice nice bike to borrow and, and to travel with. And I had the opportunity to go ride Pikes Peak that day, uh, one of the days that we had off from from training. It was a two-week um, master mechanics certification course uh, in Colorado Springs, and I rode every day after after our sessions, and then I would ride, and then I would go study, and then start again the next day. So we have a day off from from classes and I suited up the bike Friday and um, rode from from our hotel uh, over uh, Garden of the Gods and um, rode my way all the way up to the top of Pikes Peak. Uh, It was fun to ride something so epic like that um they have a toll bridge or a toll toll booth excuse me at the um, at the base of the climb and they also run private shuttles where you can you can take a shuttle up to the top and then ride a bike down but that seems dumb so i think it's more fun to ride up and then ride ride down Uh, more more satisfying for sure So I'm on this little 20-inch wheeled uh, bicycle, and I pay my, I think it was like $15 or $20. It was expensive, but it was a well-maintained road, and it was nice to get up. And I um, start my way up, and I knew I wasn't going to go super hard because the top of Pikes Peak is 14,100 and I think 14 feet or 104 feet, something like that. And I knew I was going to be a little uh, deprived of oxygen getting up to the top. But I was going to go steady and, and have a good good crack at it. So as I'm going up there, it's it's pretty spectacular. You're, you're up above tree line or you're in trees. And then you cr- get uh, past the tree line over 10,000 feet. And you just keep climbing. And the road just keeps going up and switch back up and up and up and switch back and up and up and up. And... Um, it's, it's just uh, ethereal, like you're in this other world. It's, it's pretty magical to ride up this. And the whole time I'd get passed by um, by vans full of people hauling trailers full of bikes, and they would cheer me on as I would ride up this hill, and I kept thinking to myself, like, get off your damn car, get out your damn car, <laughs> and start pedaling. Like, come on, um, you're a bunch of cheaters. But uh, that's okay. So I get up to the top, and and uh, just before, I don't know. It was probably it was over ten thousand feet, but but I still probably had another uh, two thousand feet to climb. So maybe twelve ish k up there. They were doing test runs of um, of cars getting ready for the Pikes Peak hill climb. So there's a big car race um, that they they race up Pikes Peak because it's so switchbacky. Um, and, and a private road that um, they host these races up this thing and, and they race these cars and these were the electric cars and so they were so fast um, and you would hear them coming up and, and they would give you plenty of room like they were just doing test runs so they weren't racing it but but they were going so fast up these things and these electric cars were for being electric really loud and powerful uh, and it was fun to get past by them and you could feel the rush of air next to you. And um, they give you enough space that you weren't run off the road or, or blown off the side of the mountain. But um, that was that was pretty cool. So we get up to the top um, and and I call Lauren and I must have been just too deprived of oxygen and on such an endorphin high that I just start bawling and I just start crying my eyes out. For no real apparent reason, other than I just rode up a a silly mountain. But um, yeah, so I did that. And it's weird to be above the clouds. You're looking down on top of the clouds. It was, it was pretty spectacular. Um, there are some 14,000-foot donuts you can eat. So I made sure I ate several of those. And um, then I began my descent down. And what was cool is on the descent because it's so switchbacky but the road is well maintained you are faster on a bike than you are by car so anyone who was already up there in, in a car had to had to wait um, and would let me go ahead of them because otherwise I would just ride my brakes all the way down this, this steep mountain um, so I get down to the bottom uh, the bottom of the first ranger station there's these kind of ranger stations that kind of check um, and keep tabs of people as they're going up or coming down the mountain so, the first one on the way down uh, is a brake, a mandatory brake check station. And the guy, this ranger was there and he had a, an infrared uh, heat gun or infrared heat sensor gun. And he checked my brakes and said, no, 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 you're fine. But he has to check all the cars to make sure that the cars don't uh, burn their brakes up on the way down um, because otherwise they'll go careening off the, the edge of this mountain and, and explode and die. <laughs> so to avoid that they have mandatory brake check stations but uh so i get through that no problem that was that was the first time i'd ever seen that and didn't really know what to do but um i think as a courtesy he checked my bike brakes and and said they were fine so that was that was reassuring that i could just go full gas down the down to descent um so we start to descend and start to descend and the switchbacks become the straightaways before the switchbacks become longer and longer um to where they're you know, a, a mile this way or three quarters of a mile that way before you start to hit these like hairpin corners. And they're 180-degree they're corners. And so you can get up to speed on these things. And I think I got up to about 55 miles an hour on this little bike Friday, just fully tucked um, on this thing. And if you don't look down, it feels like a regular bike. But the moment you look down at this thing and then look at your speed, it gets a little unnerving to have these teeny-tiny wheels spinning so fast Um, but you just don't look down. So if you don't look down, everything's fine. Uh, and then I got all the way back down and then rode, uh, back to the hotel. And, um, then I think I called Lauren again, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, got to, got to ride Pike's Peak on a bike Friday, um, all the way up and all the way down. And it was a great thing. I think it was a four, maybe five hour day, um, with needless to say, a lot of climbing and equally as much descending, but, uh, it was, that was a good day on the bike. So my last story for you also has to do with a big climb, um, and a pretty epic climb. It, uh, happened in 2015. We were in France at the time following the tour. We were, we spent three weeks in France for our honeymoon, a belated honeymoon, but, uh, Lauren and I were, we in France and we're, we're there following parts of the tour yeah, as well as doing some touristy things. And um, we decided we were going to go uh, watch the penultimate stage of the tour that uh, finished at the top of Alpe d'Huez, which is this iconic climb, 21 switchbacks um, up to the top of this teeny tiny little mountain town. And we had rented a nice little chalet in there and, um, and drove up the, the day before. So we've been getting around France primarily just using the train and, and maybe rent or taking a cab here and there, but you, mostly just using the train to get around France and then walking a lot, uh, as most people do. But uh, to get up to Alpe there was no train or bus that would take you up there, so we had, to, uh, we had to rent a car to get up there. So we get this little teeny tiny Fiat 500, this itty-bitty car, And to get that, we had to get our international driver's license. So we got our international driver's license through AAA, which for the record is kind of a joke. You don't have to do anything other than fill out a form and go get it stamped at the AAA office. And then suddenly you have this license to drive anywhere in the world. Anyone can do it. And it costs you, I don't know, 35 or 40 bucks, but uh, doesn't mean anything. There's no test to take. There's no nothing. But if you want your international driver's license, you can get it. And we have ours now, so great. But we got our license. We, we got into, uh, uh, into this uh, tiny little town in France where we rented the car. And we're driving this Fiat. Um, you're driving on the right-hand side of the road on a left-hand side drive car. No, excuse me, on a right-hand side drive, right-hand drive drive car does that make sense so you're you're driving like you would in the u.s on the right hand side but the the driver's seat is on the opposite side of the car so that's kind of weird but i figured it out i was driving lauren didn't want to do that she was navigating so we had to get this little tiny car on the freeway on the highway and um it's buzzing along you know we Kind of thing, and we get up to the base of Alptuès, and it's a stick shift, which is fine because I've I, I I know how to drive and I like driving a stick. Um, most cars in France are are stick shifts anyway, I believe, and we start to head up the mountain, and we're in you know first and second gear all the way up, and naturally there's a line of cars behind us that want to go a lot faster, but this car physically won't do it, so some of them are passing. Some of them have camper trailers, and they're you know they just have to sit and wait as we slowly inch our way up this mountain. So we get up to the infamous um, Dutch Corner, and Dutch Corner is this spot on Alpe d'Huez where all of the Dutch cycling fans hang out, and they go ballistic, absolutely nuts. There are, and it's orange, so everything on Dutch Corner is orange because there's um, a pro team, Uscatel Uscadi. That has been a long time, like feeder and development team, and long time standing with, um, with with Dutch cycling. So orange, everything, orange, and and then uh, they've got these smoke flares and everything, and they're like, we're driving through this through Dutch Corner, and it's the day before the tour comes through, and everyone is already completely drunk. This is middle of the day. They're totally drunk. They're putting, like, flyers on the car. I have to use the windshield wipers to, like, get the flyers off the car. Lauren's reaching around to try and pull them off. We're driving through these clouds of smoke and people yelling and cheering and screaming and, like, banging on the car. And it was it was exciting. <laughs> it was equally exciting as it was terrifying to take this tiny, tiny car up through Dutch Corner day before the tour. But we get up there. We uh, f- uh, check in with our, our B and B host and check into this cute little chalet um, where we can we can kind of post up and park the car and and then we walked everywhere else because Altois is pretty small. So day of the tour, we uh, hike on down and we we day before we had picked out our spot that we were going to be and we were going to be right at the three k to go mark. So just before three kilometers to go to the finish line because we wanted to see them racing up and not, you know, just kind of putzing in or or at the final climb. Um, We wanted to be right on the roadside. So we were just outside of the barriers by like 50 meters, um, right at the 3k to go mark. And we set up our flag, we're wearing kit, we've got our, you know, everything going on. Uh, the parade comes through and passes out candy and swag and all this kind of stuff, and it's super fun. We stay stay there most of the day, kind of holding on to this spot as more and more people gather around. Thousands and thousands of people gathering around us. Um, you remember people, man? Do you remember groups of people and like parties and events and things? I, I don't. I try to, but I don't. Anyways, I digress. So we we watched the tour. This was the year that Thibaut Pinot won the stage, and he's a French rider, and the French went nuts for the French rider. Um, he raced for uh, FDJ at the time, and he was just spectacular, absolutely magnificent on this solo attack up the climb, and um, oh, it was just it was poetry in motion. It was just phenomenal to watch. So we, we watched that as he, as he races up, and he won the stage. And then that was the year that Chris Froome won the tour overall and was in yellow, and so we got to see Froomey ride up with all of his lieutenants kind of guarding him up the climb, and they were just flying. It was really uh, phenomenal to watch. It, it was spectacular. So after that, um, the end of the day... We we go back to the chalet. We we go find a pub, and find some food, and drink some beers, and kind of hang out and meet new people, and and talk about this tour stage, and and talk about bikes, and where are you from, and all this stuff. It was super fun. We got to meet meet some crazy crazy fun people in this little pub in Aptuas. Um, and the day after that, so this was this was a day after the tour. Uh, we had wanted to rent some bicycles and ride. I wanted to ride Alpe d'Huez. That was a bucket list thing to do for me. And I made it a bucket list thing to do for, <laughs> for Lauren as well. She didn't ride the full Alpe d'Huez, but she rode the upper section um, as I joined her for the, the second half of my ride. So we rent bikes. I get to descend down Alpe d'Huez the day after the tour. Again, you're going faster than all the cars are. And there's hundreds of people on bikes. Maybe, no. Thousands of people on bikes that are going down Alpe d'Huez, and everyone is just passing the cars, and the cars just have to wait. Um, so much fun! You're passing pro team cars, and you know there's pro riders, or at least you know team directors or yours in the car, and they can see you, and you're like, "Oh, look at me! Give me a sponsorship contract!" But they weren't because they were focused on other things. So, anyways, uh, so you go down, and you go down to the. I rode down to the little town Borg and um, and then spun it around and and started to ride back up the climb. And my goal was to hit this climb as hard as I possibly could. I wanted to absolutely give my my best effort for this climb. Granted, I knew there were some some exceptions. I didn't race, you know, ninety miles before that. I haven't been racing for, you know, two and three quarter weeks before that. And I was on a rental bike. Um, that was not perfectly fit for me. So there were some some concessions to be made. But nonetheless, I was going to give this a, a, a dig and and have a good crack at it and try and catch people on the way up. So nonetheless, I, I caught people as as I was climbing. And um, it was just so much fun to ride up Alp d'Huez. And you're counting down the switchbacks from 21. It counts 21 to zero until you get to the top. So it's not um, one... number one is not at the bottom 21 is at the bottom and number one is at the top so you're counting down as you're climbing up and up and up and you try and smash these each straight away as hard as you can and so you get up there and you get up to the top and you cross the finish line and you everyone does this and i'm sure that all of the locals are just sick of it and turn away but you put your arms up or you put a you know uh, give a salute in honor of of the climb that you just did it was yeah it it was pretty spectacular to do uh, was to climb Alpdues. There's a photo uh, of me climbing Alpdues. There was a photographer that was standing right at this like staged uh, kind of spot as he um, as he snaps your photo and then hands you a business card that you can go buy the photo later uh, from his gift shop in in the little town of Alpdues. And uh, I absolutely bought. I bought two photos and the digital copies because uh, uh, well. <laughs> I wanted them, and they were great shots. Um, I'll I'll put one up in um, on the Instagram page. I'll post that to make that the 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 feed post for this episode. Will be a, a photo of me going up Alpdues. Um, but man, what a spectacular climb! And to have uh, to be in a culture that celebrates bicycles with such a passion, and and to be with other cyclists who are. Equally, if not more passionate than you are, uh, was was just just amazing to do. I hope I hope you all get the opportunity to do that and to to ride your bike in a spot, or to run in a place, or to swim wherever, or to hike wherever. That like that your activity is celebrated as much as you are, as much as you celebrate that activity. Um, it really is a spectacular thing to do. So I could go on and on sharing more stories. Um, but I will leave you with those three today. I hope you enjoyed them. Um, I plan to bring in in future episodes, uh, I have I have several people lined up that I want to bring in for interview. But COVID numbers are pretty high here in Lane County and in Eugene. Um, but I don't feel comfortable doing that yet. So that will be in the pipeline. I've got a former Olympian. I've got an amateur triathlete. I have got a prolific uh, frame builder and a couple other folks that I want to bring in to chat. And uh, look forward to those episodes. They will be happening. And uh, once once things calm down and COVID numbers kind of settle down again, then then I'll consider having them in for, for an interview. Or maybe we'll do a digital interview if I'm smart enough to figure out the tech to do that. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the transition time. It is, it is fall here in Eugene. The leaves are falling. Everything is turning red and green and or not green, uh, red, red and orange and brown and dying. And we are about to enter the rainy winter dreary months. And we're going to talk about how some athletes try and stay motivated and, and keep the focus and, and how they can stay on target and how you can do that as well. So that'll be next week. And as always, I will leave you with these three things. First, and I'm not going to get more political than this, I will say, vote. Second, as always, stay on target. And third, find little victories. Little, little things. It could be, you're in the grocery store, buy a pack of M&Ms, enjoy those pack of M&Ms sitting in your car. I don't care. Get the cup of coffee drink the Italian soda, whatever, small, teeny tiny, itty bitty little victories. Try that this week. See if you can take a little more time for satisfaction and enjoyment in these teeny tiny little victories. So there you have it. Thanks for tuning in and until next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Not Last podcast. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop weekly. Follow us on Instagram at notlast underscore podcast. This podcast is produced solely by me. If you like what you hear, be sure to tell your friends. The music is generously permitted by the illustrious Fleming Gosis. My amazing artwork was created by the extremely talented Paige Enochibar. Give them a follow and be sure to support local artists. You can find and subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and Stitcher podcasts, really anywhere you want. Coming up next, fall is here, and let's talk about transitioning to winter and how some athletes hold their focus through the dreary months. I'm excited you're here, and I hope you'll come back soon.